Welcome back, everyone, to My Fave Queer Chemist. I'm your host, Becca. And I'm Geraldo. We hope that you are staying safe and enjoying the show. We've had a blast making this special and learning about science that we're not usually exposed to. We hope that y'all are continuing to support each other and our LGBTQ plus siblings, even past the month of pride. And remember, Black Lives Matter today and every day. So with that, here's our show. Hello, everyone. We're really excited to introduce you to today's guest. Would you mind introducing yourself? Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Z. I use the pronouns they, them. I got my bachelor's in science at Cornell University with a degree in biology. And then I got my PhD at University of Washington um, in neurobiology and behavior. So now I am faculty at CU Boulder. I work for the Atlas Institute. It's a creative tech institute. It's pretty fun. And there I am at two positions. <laughs> I'm the STEM outreach coordinator and I'm an instructor. Nice. So kind of starting off with your graduate career, can you tell us a little bit about your time at the University of Washington and how you got interested in neurobiology? Sure. Uh, so I was interested in neurobio actually from my undergrad. Um, you could take you could have a focus on your uh, biology degree, and I took uh, an intro to neuroscience, and I was like, "Shaw's the neuroscientist." That's <laughs> cool. Um, so I actually did my thesis work on mosquitoes and how they use heat to find people. And my I'm kind of broadly, I have a broad spread across neurobiology. So I really like computational neuro. I think that's kind of the future and the present of neuroscience now. Well, it was future then, present now. Um, and I also like animal behavior. So I wanted to find a way to bring those two together. So I looked at mosquito trajectories in response to convective thermal plumes uh, to see uh, if they could introduce a, a side bias that, depending on where I placed the plume. Um, and that allowed me to uh, look at hundreds of different trajectories and from that surmise a, de a decision-making strategy using computational neuroscience. So I like to do uh, the wet stuff and I also like to do the uh, mathematical computational side as well. That's amazing. I have, yeah. <laughs> I'm in such awe of like computational chemists, computational scientists. I know like so little about computer science and computational science. So that's amazing. Yeah. This, this is a silly question, but did you get like a lot of mosquito bites working on that? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that kind of comes with the territory. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I actually became, so there's, you could go either way. You could get more sensitive to them or you can get insensitive to them. Yeah. And I actually became insensitive to them. So after a while, I would itch for about a couple of hours. And then that was it. So oh, that's good. Not as loud. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's reversed. <laughs> it was kind of nice. I felt like I had a superpower. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. That is cool. So, did you feel supported as a queer person of color at Washington during your graduate studies? Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a rough question for me. Uh, mm -hmm. The short answer: as a queer person, no. Uh, but I should make the disclaimer that I've never been one of, uh, I've never been like ostentatiously out. Um, mm -hmm. It was just sort of a thing where if you looked at me long enough, you'd kind of figure it out, <laughs> you'd, kind of enough, you'd figure it out and say something. But I wasn't uh -huh. like, hey, I'm here, I'm queer. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm more like that now, but at the time I, I, I very much wasn't. Um, yeah. 
so I would have, you know, my own sense of gender expression tending to be very androgynous, especially in the winter when it's colder and there's layers and you know, <laughs> your body shape can change more drastically. Mm -hmm. And so I found a lot of like social issues, a lot of transphobia that happened around that because I think partly because if I didn't tell faculty, who, you know, how I identified and then I came and dressed as a dude one day, mm -hmm. they would just kind of be like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, yeah. Instead of like, you know, taking a moment and be like, oh, I think this person actually just has a, a fluid gender representation. But Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I ran into a lot of issues with that uh, from faculty, uh, not so much from my cohort, not so much from my peers, but definitely didn't feel supported, uh, didn't really have outlets, didn't really, anyway, I, I found all the queer faculty, right, you know, kind of as you do. Yeah. yeah. And that was really my support was what I found. I have some horror stories, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, from it. I'm kind of one of those, uh, you know, horror stories about grad school in general unfortunately but mm -hmm. not a lot of support yeah. and how do you feel that affected you know the way that you represent or like the way you feel right now about about that situation Ooh. <laughs> uh, well a lot of therapy and a lot of healing <laughs> and a lot of time has gone into yeah. this um, to be specific I had a number of people who are on my committee and my advisor as well who I noticed whenever I was more masculine presenting uh, would be kind of just gruffer with me they would just be a little bit uh, you know I would get questioned more aggressively I would never get a compliment uh, every everything I suggested would either be kind of passed over or ignored or if I were to present something, it would just kind of get grilled out endlessly. Um, so I'm a scientist and I did some experiments. So yeah. <laughs> for a week I was femme presenting, we got compliments, things were easy going, uh, had just a general easy time in lab meetings and things like that. I would dress masculine, same thing, get this kind of short kind of behavior, not really engaging with me, not making eye contact, that was a big thing. Um, and then dress, went back to dressing femme, it was like, flipping a switch and I went back and forth for four weeks and just saw this very distinct behavior from the people that I was regularly working with. Um, and these are the people deciding my career, deciding my right. ability. And so I reached this point where I went, okay, I'm going to play the game to win it. And I dressed as a femme presenting person from then until the end of my uh, grad career. And wow. it was awful. It was mm -hmm. really, really, really bad. I became really depressed. Uh, kind of all of the story, stereotypical, mm -hmm. uh, closeted and suppressed uh, queer stories happened to me while I'm trying to finish my thesis. <laughs> uh, yeah. It was rough. <laughs> I did not enjoy it at all. Um, so now, uh, as someone who's faculty, validation is probably the biggest thing that I push outward of the people that I work with, uh, whether they're other faculty, whether they're students, uh, just do, going out of my way to say, I see you, I notice you, you're okay. If you ever need somebody to talk to, come talk to me. Mm -hmm. I made a point to have an office. I specifically, when I got hired, I said, you have to give me an office that is removed from people because people are going to come in and talk to me about things they're not going to talk to you about. Uh, yeah. So I created this safe space for them. And that's like, boy, is that front and center. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's really beautiful and great that you were able to move from that, you know, space and, and now you are totally different from what those people you know were doing to you yeah, yeah and you're like creating a space that 
is safe would have yeah. yeah that is safe and that would have been beneficial for you i think that yeah. that's amazing and that i mean it's it's unfortunate that you didn't get the support that you needed mm-hmm. but i think that's also one of the big reasons why we need queer people we need people of color who are in faculty positions who are creating these spaces that mm-hmm. don't exist yeah because of the way that our institutions are run and the way that science is run and everything so I mean, again, it's unfortunate because that is more burden on, you know, queer people of color who are in these positions, but it's also like incredible that like when those spaces are created. Yeah. Yeah. And And, and thank you for that. Yeah. I mean, I'm grateful and humbled and happy to have just made it out of that situation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. And, and I see the returns already. So I, I already just kind of attract, (laughs) it's fun to see the students that come to me that knock on my door and I was like, Oh, Hey, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I get it. Uh, but I had I had a, a graduate student that I was advising who also had a really rough time. Uh, it's hard to really know in a lot of situations like what facet of your identity. Uh, she was another uh, QPOC uh, where I was able to tell her the things that I oh man if I heard that in grad school I would have just been like yeah let's go we're gonna crush yeah. all this stuff forget everybody I got somebody <laughs> in my corner that's fighting for me and just to be able to do that for somebody else to be that support to be that anchor to really help someone deal with the traumas that are always related to identities especially Mm -hmm. gender identities has just been you know i I could cry about it at any given moment (laughs) i'm just grateful to be able to do that for other people yeah definitely that's really amazing oh wow warming (laughs) my heart hearing that because i i think like it's hard I think especially for us who are in departments or programs that there aren't queer faculty, there are mm-hmm. hardly people of color in yeah. our department. Um, and so I think like about how powerful that must be to like kind of get that support. And, and luckily for Geraldo and I through doing this podcast and through doing this project, we kind mm-hmm. of get a little bit of that. So yeah. and selfishly, <laughs> selfishly, it's like, it's really awesome for us, but um, but it's it's still hard to like not feel like you know you have a professor or a person who kind of has a little bit more like power, if you will, yeah. than you who yeah. have gone through similar experiences. And again, that's just like why it's so important that like people are in these like faculty positions and are mm-hmm. like leading and mentoring graduate students and and scientists so yeah, yeah I mean, you're you're helping the cause thank you guys for doing this podcast and making it really well known that not just are we out here but we're out here in numbers right? yeah, <laughs> like, definitely. Sure. Yeah. yeah exactly even just like like we normally just interview chemists and even that i'm like i'm confident that we'll be able to continue this throughout the next four years of our PhD program. And hopefully this project will live on forever. Like (laughs) there's, cause there's, you're right. There's so many of us out there. So anyway, (laughs) good sidetracked. So then, so then you move from Washington to Virginia tech for your postdoc. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Were they drastically different? Was it better? Hopefully. 
How was that? Yeah. So, uh, man, my time in the Soha lab was a healing time. Man, <laughs> it was great. <laughs> um, so I worked at Virginia Tech. I, I worked with flying snakes. So my, my love wow. is that topic. <laughs> That's so that. cool. <laughs> and I went to grad school because I wanted to do neuroscience on reptiles because I was all about comparative biology and I'm like, here's this totally other evolutionary path. Isn't it going to be so dope to be able to like do this comparative work with neurons and stuff like that? No, it's really hard to do. <laughs> There's like nobody there that's studying reptiles and nobody there. I wanted to look at uh, thermal vision and vipers. So it's like working with reptiles, working with snakes, working with venomous snakes, <laughs> doing computational work. It was it was not going to happen. Um, so I, I met Jake while I was in grad school uh, at a conference. And then as like, we ended up talking for like an hour and a half and I was like, this guy, I want to go work with him. This is dope. And so uh, we ended up doing um, some work. I just kind of read around and like watched a bunch of videos and they have these huge eyes. Like they really stick out of their heads and they're very pronounced. And I just started thinking, I'm like, well, if you have, usually if you're, allocating that much tissue <laughs> to an organ, you're doing something with it. <laughs> so, uh, so I started to look into vision um, and we ended up building a virtual arena um, for these snakes to try to see if we can look at how they like to control their visual scene. So what do they like to look at? What do they like to not look at? What do they run away from? And see if we can induce any sort of gliding-like behaviors by giving them just visual input. Um, it was an undertaking to say the least, but we ended up finding out a lot of really great stuff uh, about about snakes. And then on the the queer side of that, <laughs> very easy. I think I think I came out to Jake like my second day there. Like I was just like, <laughs> let me just not have the same experience I had in grad school. Uh, I was just very yeah. open about everything. He was always really accommodating and always really understanding. And he's really someone who, if he doesn't know something, will just sit down and listen really intently and like if you get ever get mad at him you're mad at him like one time for one thing and then he like fixes it and you're like off and running out of another so he like picks up the change like really really quickly so changing my pronouns he caught mm -hmm. on pretty quick uh any changes in gender identity he was like oh yeah okay <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> and it was just like yeah it was awesome being in Blacksburg, being in rural Virginia was a challenge. I was very, very, very careful about my presentation in public. Uh, I felt yeah. fine if I was in, in lab. I felt fine if I was around my, my cohort, things like that. Uh, but going around town, you know, I had to had to fem it up a little bit. I had to, mm -hmm. had to use some, some camouflage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it can get pretty dicey around there. But it's good that, that the it was different from the graduate school, at least, you know, your lab experience and your mentor yeah that's good yeah I'm, i mean so appreciative of it I, mm -hmm. and the, and there's like a lot of uh, people of color in that lab too so it was just a whole vibe man. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> yeah so you were also involved in a variety of outreach events during your time there at virginia tech including the virginia science fest the science museum of western virginia middle school summer camp and National Biomechanics Day, to name a few. Can you tell us about your, your experience during these different events? Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, if, I, if I could do one thing forever, every single day, it would be to like go to these science festivals <laughs> and go to these museums and work with kids every day. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Amazing. First of all, kids pick things up so quickly and you could teach them the most complex 
biomechanics, neuroscience, physics, if you have the right approach to it. And so they're like sponges. And it's just amazing to see how much they pick up. Mm -hmm. uh, for almost all of those events that you mentioned, I would have a snake with me. So it was in a snake lab. We're talking about snake locomotion. In this I'm case, sure the kids uh, loved that. <laughs> yeah. So I brought my <laughs> personal pets. The, so flying snakes are mildly venomous. And there's all of these rules about how you can take them out and when you can take them out and keeping them safe and keeping mm -hmm. us safe. So we couldn't take them out for most uh, public events. It was like these very small, very, very specific planned things. Uh, so I would bring my personal snakes in um, and just talk about the differences. So I have a, a ball python, which is terrestrial, and I have a boa constrictor, which is arboreal. And so I would bring both wherever I could and talk about how there's differences in their features or phenotype that accommodates their lifestyle. And so then I would segue to talking about flying snakes. And so these kids loved it. And they and just going in, I went to a classroom and there was, uh, it was like 30 students and I just brought out the two snakes and I was like, one of these lives on the ground and one of these lives in trees. Can you guess which one? And they figured it out just by looking at it. They're like, well, <laughs> this guy is kind of like, he's kind of flat and he doesn't really see me moving. But this one's like really strong. And I feel like if you like grab onto things, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just, I mean, what I loved about it is just kind of giving the students an outlet to really think about the world, really wonder about the world, to ask questions mm -hmm. in a place that, again, feels safe, that there's no bad questions, you're not gonna feel belittled for not knowing why the bottom of the snake feels different from the top of the snake. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so just giving them that avenue to really think about science in a way that's fun and engaging and like on a weekend <laughs> or <laughs> in the summer. <laughs> Um, it was just, it's wonderful. And I, I love informal STEM. It's my whole bread and butter these days. So it was, it was really transformative. Yeah, definitely. I received that, that feedback from the kids when you, when they learn something, it's so like gratifying and, and very fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah. The best part is when you see black kids, man, I would walk into a room and they would just <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, what's up? <laughs> that's yeah. kind of <laughs> <You. laughs> that, That's lovely, yeah. That's, oh, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. like, I was so, not expecting that. <laughs> so kind of moving in the direction of, you know, your STEM outreach, you now work as an instructor and STEM outreach coordinator at the Atlas Institute in Boulder, Colorado. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about what the Atlas Institute is? I mean, you mentioned it briefly at the beginning and then how your experience has been working there. Yeah, um, so I actually am coming up on my one year anniversary. I absolutely love it there. Okay. Uh, so the Atlas Institute is a creative tech institute and we like to say that we're inventing the future. So we really take uh, a lot of social and current tech and current social issues and look at how they're progressing and then make kind of guesses as to where these two, how tech and social issues are gonna interplay. And so a lot of the projects that are happening there kind of happen at that interface. Mm -hmm. And so they have those sort of traditional creative tech things that you would expect. There's a lot of robots, a lot of robots, <laughs> uh, a lot of VR work, a lot of immersive work. So wearing uh, markers and then having uh, motion caption sensors and then doing all sorts of things with that. You, creating art, doing actual like scientific or biomechanical measurements and it really spans the gamut. Uh, we also have a few wet labs in there, so working with personalized tech, personalized medicine, so making biochips that can uh, you can take around to do blood tests or to sample water. 
That's the Living Matter Lab. So dope. Uh, <laughs> also making cellophane packaging that is uh, plant-based and sort of uh, edible, but still uh, can be sa uh, sanitized. So you can have basically go and buy a packet of ramen and then just dump the whole thing. In. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so a really, really, really diverse series of problems that they're solving, um, interests, uh, there's also a really wonderful interface with the dance and theater department. So there is a component of our, uh, literally a whole floor <laughs> of our building. We have a black box theater in a, in a tech building, right? Like, what would you do there? You make really amazing tech-inspired and tech-supported uh, performances and installations. So a lot of, like, we had one uh, performance that re recently happened uh, where the artists were wearing shirts that had touch sensors on them. And so if the two dancers touched the, the fabric of their shirt together, it would change the light. So the color of your lighting changed. And then they had a wall that had microphones in it and would amplify any of the sounds. So any like scraping or tapping or brushing would be this huge booming echo. And so they would create music. And so these two dancers were dancing and every time they would touch, the lights would change, and every time they were on the wall, the sounds would, and so you kind of get lost and forget that they're making the music, and that, you know, it's, you kind of, it's just this whole immersion in mm -hmm. a performance in a, a way that I've never seen. Um, and so we do all sorts of events like that, and it's this radically decentralized, very anarchistic <laughs> uh, kind of theater that makes really outstanding art. It, I mean, just spectacular. That's so cool. That's amazing. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's dope. <laughs> <laughs> <Check out Alex. laughs> yeah. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit more about like your role? So what does your like day-to-day -day look like? At the yeah, office? so huh. right now, uh, so <laughs> well, yeah, so right now it's different, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'm teaching. So my, most of my days are, are spent with my students. So I just teach intro to creative coding, uh, which has been a blast. And when I'm on a, on a more regular basis, non-Rona slash uh, yeah. in school year, um, it's sort of 50-50 between teaching and then outreach efforts. Um, this job, this position that I have is really so catered to me that I, I it's like I'm just paid to be <laughs> there <laughs> as myself. Um, so it's very hard for me to like stop working actually. But, uh, so I do a lot of networking. So I, I connect with uh, K through 12 schools I do a lot of outreach, like uh, setting up classroom visits, getting judges for uh, science fairs and things like that, trying to work on generating some curricula so for homeschooling. And then on the other end, I also network for businesses, trying to see how we can make collaborative projects with businesses in the area and also set up our grad students for employment. So start to get them networking, start to get them jobs, things like that. Uh, it's all still very formative. <laughs> it takes a really long time to set this up. I'm the first person in this position. So mm -hmm. it feels like I don't really make a lot of progress. But I, <laughs> there's a really solid like network of people that I have now that are getting more and more infused with Atlas. And that's really cool to see. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So do you feel supported there as a queer person of color? Hell yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I don't think I would have taken the job. I don't think I would have stayed uh, for even yeah. this long. At this point, my tolerance is non-existent. Like, <laughs> if I'm not supported, I'm out. Like, that's it. Yeah. Um, Alice is fantastic. I, uh, above and beyond. Um, 
I feel more supported there than I have in any job and any position in my academic wow. career. Everything that I kind of bring to the table, they make room for my experiences and really the ability for everyone to just kind of sit down and listen and hear this perspective of something that they haven't known and then integrate it. It's not just like, oh, well, I had this, I heard it, and then I'm moving on. It's like, I heard it, and I'm thinking about it for days. Mm -hmm. and we're going to have independent conversations. My first week at this job, I sat in a room. It's boulders. There's a very large percentage of white people. Yes. <laughs> so I'm sitting in this room of mostly white people, and they're talking about problematic behaviors of cis white men and what to look out for in their classroom. And they're talking about visible and invisible diversity and how they succeed at one thing and how they struggle at other things. And my mind was blown. Like, it wasn't like I, they were having this conversation because the Black person was there. And it wasn't mm -hmm. like they were having, you know, they wanted me to be some sort of, like, wisdom, like, have all the wisdom about a topic. Yeah. They were just used to having these conversations, bringing up race issues, bringing up gender issues, just fluid. I, even now, like going to, to faculty meetings, they'll just talk about it. Like it just comes up and it's a little thing, right? Like the standard should be much higher than that. Yeah. But the, it's the smoothness. It's just the mm -hmm. ease with everybody just like takes it and processes it and recognizes it as a valid and important issue. It's like, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and do you think... I'm not saying that they're perfect. Like you know, there's mm -hmm. all, all, every single last one of us can stand to improve, right? It's the whole point of life. Right. Um, but the the issues that I've run into there have been resolved with, I think, equal parts compassion and professionalism to allow people to be, especially black women, especially black trans people, to allow them to have open expression of emotions is a huge deal we are not allowed to emote and just having a place where where there's conflict i can be upset i can be angry i can be sad and be heard yeah. i'll take it i'll take it i'll take it any day i'll take it it's amazing <laughs> yeah it's amazing yeah. so do you think yeah. that that has to do with the way that the atlas institute is designed the people who work there because i'm i'm curious as to like the like that sounds starkly different than academia and like lab settings. Yeah. And so I'm wondering like what makes the Atlas Institute like that? Is it the people there? Is it the institution itself? And like, how do we like soak up that. Some of that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> take that and apply it to like academia? I feel like especially now, like given kind of the climate of our country, that's like a huge topic right now is like mm -hmm. what are the departments and um, institutions of academia and do can like what can they do to be better because mm -hmm. all of them need to be better so yeah. I'm just curious like what are your thoughts on that yeah so I think it's I think it's equal parts how Atlas is set up and the people who are at Atlas and they're kind of chicken and egg side of the situation but um, so Atlas is radically anti-disciplinary we're not really encouraged to be like I'm a chemist or mm -hmm. I'm a neuroscientist. You're kind of there as a creative entity and a participant in the culture. And because of that, and everybody kind of comes from all these different backgrounds. We have a, a nanochemist who's making um, tech tattoos, so tattoos that change color in response to heat and UV exposure. And so, so he, cool. he has this nanotech 
background, but he's working with physicists in his lab, right? So he's, everybody's working outside of their expertise. Everyone is working outside of their training. And so you're kind of, when you're in that environment, I think it trains you to always learn and be humble because you might know everything there is to know about electrical engineering, but now you have to work with somebody who's a singer. You don't know anything about that. So you have to, in order to make your project successful, you have to be as much a teacher as you are a student. And I think that just makes the entire culture, the entire atmosphere, one where you're always learning about everything. Like not just things that are technical, not just things that are professional, but everything. There's also this component of the social weight. So what are we doing to, Atlas really spends a lot of time thinking about their role in society. Who are we in Boulder? Who are we at CU? Who are we in Colorado? Like think, think about it constantly. And I think that perspective as well, I think it kind of just comes down to humility, right? Like you can't really have an ego when you're working with these highly collaborative projects and, and then that just yeah. trains you to not be egotistical about that stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's, it sounds so simple. Like, <laughs> <laughs> of course. Let's get to it. Yeah, let's get to it. <laughs> So switching gears a little bit, when did you decide that you wanted to go into science communication and science outreach? Yeah, uh, that was my fourth year of grad school. Third year, I realized, I don't think research is for me, but we're going to ride this thing out. Uh, my fourth year, it kind of, oh gosh, it's kind of a whole long-winded story, but I kind of came to this realization that I have, a, I have a serious problem with the audience that researchers have uh, when we're writing papers, when writing our articles, who, are, who is that audience? And when you're writing, when you're doing work like I was where, you know, my work is affecting a very specific group of people, right? So mostly brown people, black and brown people along the equator in the tropics. I want to get that information to them. They're the ones that are really going to be able to do something with it. That's my whole motivation of being a scientist in the first place. Yeah. How do I do that? If I'm writing journal articles where I will be judged by white cis, most likely men, most likely middle class, most likely American. I'm judged by them and I'm, I'm writing for them. I can't control where my idea goes. And so that kind of began that train of thought where I was like, where does the idea go? How does the information get disseminated? Who is disseminating that information? Yeah. Um, and in that, I also am a performer, I sing and dance and like to be in front of people. And so it just kind of like came together. It's like, oh, I like to talk about science. And I like to go to people and I'm the kind of person that can like, I can get down anywhere. <laughs> like, I don't matter, it doesn't matter where I go. I'm going to have a great time. <laughs> uh, and so I think that all just kind of lent itself to a career in STEM outreach. Uh, mm-hmm. And I love it. I love, I love talking about science. I love learning about science. Yeah. So what advice would you give for graduate students who may be interested in going into a non-traditional career path like STEM outreach? Yeah. There's like two things. One, be very choosy about your advisor. Like you're already choosy about your advisor going into grad school, double it. <laughs> Super choosy. Have the conversation if you can, as early as you can, about what they can do to support you if you mm-hmm. want to do an alternative career. Mm-hmm. Um, and they should at the very least give space so that you can go and explore if they're not equipped to give you resources. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's probably the biggest thing, to have transparency, to have make sure that you can get that support. 
I ran into lack of support. Once I said I wanted to go into STEM, they're like, oh, well, you gotta, you have to finish your PhD. You have to do what we say. And I was like, well, yeah, <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't understand why. And then it became this kind of combative thing. So just make sure that you're talking about it and then check job postings. I think that's probably like, as you go from, as soon as the idea pops into your head that you might want to do something outside of academia, outside of the professorial track, start looking at job postings. Because what you'll learn is that the things you're learning in grad school, we call them different things. We use them for different things. It's the same skill set that they're looking in other jobs. Mm -hmm. So get an idea of what goes out, what, what people are looking for, so you can kind of fill in your resume, your CV, so you're better, best prepared for that, uh, that job. And then just keep an eye out for like what the skill set is and how they talk about it. So you talk about like project management in a lot of job positions, for example, and you as grad students are doing project management. You're mm -hmm. getting your own funding, you're dealing with your own supplies, you're dealing with the own pacing of when things get done, how you're going to conferences, your stakeholders are your committee, <laughs> right? You've done it. So just keep an eye out for, make sure you have a transparent, open relationship with your advisor and continuously check job postings so you know what the, what the field is like. Yeah. Those are really good advice. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing <laughs> advice. I am interested in like going into, I don't really know what yet, but I think maybe science policy or some sort of science communication. That is yeah. really, really good advice. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I always love like meeting people who like have PhDs in this cool science and research area and they're doing something slightly different or yeah. like non-traditional or yeah and, and the number of non-traditional the number of not sorry uh, number of non-traditional jobs for PhDs is growing mm -hmm. uh, thanks to a lot of PhDs who went out and started their own business became entrepreneurs so like yeah so it's it's getting easier and easier to make that transition yeah. So I know you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but what do you think is important to communicate science to the general public? And also, what has been your biggest challenge working in the STEM outreach? Okay, the biggest challenge is easy. Uh, not enough hours of the day. <laughs> I, I want to do more, 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 more. That's my, my biggest issue. Uh, getting kind of cohesion in psychometers is also a bit of a struggle, which is ironic. So, okay, what's important to communicate to the general public? A story. A story. Uh, so, I've been reading Sapiens. Um, one, of the, one of the main traits, the synapomorphy, of humans, so we tell stories. It's what causes cohesion, it's what creates culture, what makes us going from a group of 100 people working together to groups of thousands of people working together is the story. If you all believe in that same story, you're, you're it, yeah, that's, that's family, that's tribe, that's, that's culture, right? So having that story about the science that you're telling is key. And to think about it, instead of going, and I did this, and I did this, and I found this, and this is what I think is happening, but to think of who is the main character, right? So a lot of the times, my main character is a flying snake. How do they explore the world? What are their challenges? What do they like to see? However, do they do what they do? But it could be you, the scientist, or it could be the research itself. The tedium of the research itself can be the character, can be the central point of the story. But really finding that story is how we connect to each other as humans. 
Um, and then in that story, finding the elements that we really share. So finding things that make it relatable, make it something that everybody can connect to. We're all worried about our health. We're all worried about our family. We're all worried about our friends. Uh, even without all this nonsense going on right now, even in 19, 2019 standards, the good old golden years, <laughs> we, we have, this, these are the things that people, that the human experience is really centered around. And so if you can find some way to relate to that, to relate your story, to that human intrinsic feeling, the things you care about, you're golden, you're good. You tell that story well. Yeah, that's awesome. That was a really great explanation. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so switching gears a little bit, um, I know we've, we've talked a little bit about this um, during this interview, but how would you say your different identities, both as a person of color, as a queer person, um, how would you say that those have interacted with each other and then also how these different identities have influenced and intersected with your career as a scientist. Yeah, uh, a lot. It's, it's, it's a huge part. <laughs> so I want to just make that disclaimer that I have a singular identity, but in order for me to interact with other people and in order for me really to help solve the problems, uh, I have to break that identity down into facets. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it kind of ends up being like a case by case. And a lot of times people are like, pick one. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, gender. I'm like, deal with that. Or you got, so we're going with that. You got religion. We're going with that. And it's like, okay. <laughs> so for me, it's kind of weird because I, I don't really, internally, I don't have a black non-binary experience i have the shaz experience that yeah. in some cases i talk about when it's non-binary in some cases i talk about when it's black whatever first generation many many things but they they've come together in a in a particularly gnarly way a lot of times uh i find like people have a very thin bandwidth for otherness if they see a feature that they don't recognize in themselves it's one feature they can get down with that they can process that they're like I'm saying just like you're blindfolded picking a random person, they could probably process like one weird thing. When it starts to stack up, it's like you just watch the brains fall apart. <laughs> like, <laughs> so the patient person is definitely made me a very compassionate and understanding person because otherwise I'd be mad to the point that I wouldn't get anything done mm -hmm. um, and that would defeat me. So I, it's definitely made me into like, a, I feel like I, maybe it's kind of like maybe being a parent in a little way where it's just like, okay, I just have to wait and they'll figure it out. Oh, yep. There they go. They figured it out. Great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, when it comes to my career in STEM outreach in particular, I am working for the archetype that I was as a child. Mm -hmm. Low socioeconomic background, first generation American my culture at home, nothing like the culture I went to school with, went to work with. Queer, knew I was queer from for a while. <laughs> <laughs> uh, knew I wasn't straight for a while. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, so for all of those things, I, I really am just generating material for the severely underserved, the severely underrepresented, and just making a show that you can carve out that space, you can make that niche if you really want it that bad. Mm -hmm. uh, and just access to STEM, like God, the thing, the thing, the big thing with especially low SES is just access to STEM, man. They just don't know. Nobody's going there. Mm -hmm. Everybody's got all their like thoughts about how it's being handled or what happens in the neighborhoods or whatever, what happens in those schools. 
nobody's really like going to be like, do you know that what you could do for a living? Do you know that someone will pay you <laughs> to make video games <laughs> for mm-hmm. animals? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. you can do that <laughs> like, uh so i it's it's my my identity my experience has definitely been how do i make sure no one else experiences the pitfalls that i experience? Mm-hmm. yeah thank you for that yeah thank you for sharing that so who is your biggest role model in the stem field and why and you can have more than one if you have multiple yeah <laughs> <laughs> Uh, right out the gate, Ben Bars. Uh, man, <laughs> what a human. Holy cow. So he was a trans neuro- neurobiologist. I think he was at Stanford. I have a whole thing about name recall. Uh, and <laughs> not only did he do amazing science, <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> that man was brilliant, but super outspoken. Like, I, mean, I, I feel like, of course, that's kind of like the the unspoken duty to trans mm-hmm. people in science. But this yeah. was like, I mean, he transitioned when was this like early 90s maybe. And so this was, I mean, the support structures weren't there. The norms weren't there. Mm-hmm. And he's out there just being vocal about it, helping up the next generation and like, oh, rock star. 10 out of 10, amazing, <laughs> amazing human. I hope he rests in peace. What an incredible contribution to the scientific field. Uh, he's definitely number one, like way above everybody else. After that, I gotta say, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for old school days, Bill Nye. Don't really know what's happening nowadays. <laughs> old school days. <laughs> yeah. 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 That, just being so goofy around science, like mm-hmm. that was, that was also novel. Nobody was really doing that. He had Mr. Wizard who was kind of like, a little buttoned up and uh but here comes bill nye with sound effects and kids doing everything like showing really showing mm-hmm. kids doing all the work themselves was like yeah that definitely is somebody i look up to yeah. even though he's an engineer we'll call him a scientist <laughs> <laughs> yeah so last question where can people connect with you on social media if they want to connect yeah. Um, so my handle on all platforms is at the Dr. Z. That's T H E D O C T A. The letter Z is in zebra. Uh, so I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on there all the time. Kind of, kind of joining the masses of uh, <laughs> protest online there. But mm-hmm. I generally like to make a lot of content about uh, neuroscience and kind of neural hacking. So how you can do things to help support. Uh, your hormonal ba- balances, your neurological balances, things like that. Uh, and then um, I also have a website. It's curiousdrz.com. And there you can find all my latest works, things, projects that I'm working on, as well as all of my connections. So if you can't remember the Dr. Z, you can go to curiousdrz.com. Perfect. Awesome. Can I, can I ask another silly question? Oh, sure. <laughs> have you gotten a, a lot of like snake bites? Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> and I have I'm I'm like like the most unfortunate person. Uh I have I apologize for my dog. Um I have uh hold on one second. <laughs> I think she's done. <laughs> um yeah, I so flying snakes mildly venomous, uh, and I am apparently very sensitive to their venom. So I would get oh. bitten, and I would be feeling in my finger, my whole hand would swell up, and this happened to nobody else. 
was awful. <laughs> oh my like, god. <laughs> but for the most part, their bites don't hurt. It kind of feels at, at most like a like a pinprick, like you touched a staple the wrong way. Um, at at worst, uh, really isn't too bad. But yeah. they've got Still scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <it's> so scary. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I think that was all we had for you, but this was so much fun. It was so great meeting you virtually and chatting. And thank you for being vulnerable. And yeah, always. sharing a lot. Yeah, thank you for that. that really and cool. I am dying to go to the Atlas Institute. So Geraldo and I will have to plan a trip <laughs> out to Colorado. Yep, yeah, I've never been to Colorado. <laughs> I wanna yeah, I'd be happy to show you around. we got cool stuff in the works. Thank you guys so much for this opportunity. I'm really honored to be here. Thank you for finding me and chatting with me. It's yeah. I appreciate you and everything you do. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so well, much. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. 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 Let us honor Pride Month by showing up for our trans siblings and the Black community who both need our support. And as always, remember to fill out the nomination form on our Twitter if you're interested in being interviewed for the show. You can follow us at MFQC pod. Take care, everybody, and stay safe. We'll see you next week. Bye. Adios.